This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. Hey, hey, hey. TK Coleman. I was What's just up, man? I was just in the middle of singing some journey tunes, so I'm in a good mood. <laughs> what journey tone were you singing? Oh, man? I mean the greatest song ever. This is this is my song, Faithfully by Journey. I mean that, that's about <laughs> it that's about as good as it gets for me. That's like perfect vocally because it's just in my range, but it's it's real high. I gotta push it, I gotta be warmed up, but I can hit it, you know? So the big question is, are you gonna are you gonna hit a note for us right now? No, man. I I was I would have, except I saw a video surface on Facebook of you at a fee seminar last week, and the crowd was cheering and chanting for you to sing a couple lines because they knew you had once auditioned for American Idol, and you refused. And you pulled one of those youth pastor moments that you spoke yes. about. Where it's like I used to be cool and now I got saved and I'm not cool anymore. It was like the worst pitch for you were at a conference about entrepreneurship and you're talking about how great it is. And you're like, no, nah, no, nah, I don't do that anymore. I'm an entrepreneur. And in the video, you can hear one kid in the crowd mumbles, that sounds boring. <laughs> you're like, entrepreneurs, they don't sing, they don't dance, they don't have fun, they don't laugh. <laughs> you know, back in the day, man, before entrepreneurship. You know, I used to love art and creativity and music, and I do all sorts of cool things. But yeah, I, I run a business now. I was now, my friends, I'm... man. I was dropping triple doubles on the court. I was going out. You know, it was, it was amazing. But you know, I'm in, I'm in business now. So here's my card. <laughs> I love it, man. All right, all right. So next time, next time I'll sing, and uh, and, and at some point during the season of your podcast, we got to hear Isaac Morehouse. Get a note from Journey, man. But but uh, neither of those things will take place today. All right, that's that's fair. That's fair. I actually, I actually one time, actually twice, a couple uh, of the songs that I've written and sang. I usually just like play them, record them on my iPhone, and they're all just private on SoundCloud because I don't. They're not for anybody else. But but twice I made them publicly available. Uh, one was sort of in memory of someone who had passed. And another was a song it was actually the only time I've ever worked with somebody at like a studio and actually did like a legitimate recording. Mm-hmm. And, um, it was, it was one of those things I, you know, the whole, uh, so good, they can't ignore you. There's a flip yeah. side to that too. It's easy. If you're not good, you're get you, you get ignored. I was like, so nervous. <laughs> like I, I, this is just, I don't share my music publicly. I, I don't know. This is embarrassing. All right, fine. I'll do it. I'm going to get over it. Forget it. This would be good for me. And then nobody, <laughs> nobody noticed, which is almost worse than being criticized. Um, okay, so I got to tell you first, if my microphone starts making me sound like a, like a psychopathic, homicidal robot and it starts getting all garbled, stop me right away because I can't hear it on my end, but I've had that happen to me a few times lately. Um, so just stop me and I can try to readjust the cord. But what if I've always thought you sounded like that? I am assuming that we have a shared perception of the way that I sound. That's a good, that's true. That's true. Mm. The, the hey, rabbit hole. <laughs> hey, let me ask you. What I'm, just, you I'm just trying out my new comedy techniques. That's all. Uh, oh, that was comedy? 
Yeah, that was an effort at it. It, it wasn't comedy because it didn't get the result, you know, right. but it was an effort at it. I would normally say keep working at it, but you've been working at it for like 25 years, <laughs> 35 years, however old you are, 55 years. Uh, hey, what are, you, what are you reading right now? Oh, man. So uh, I'm reading a few books right now. So I just recently, quote, unquote, discovered Herbert Spencer. So oh, I'm, re- yeah. I'm reading one gem of a book right here, right can, now by can him. I, can I just Social quickly, Status. because you've done this to me so many times, I just want you to know that I've, I've mentioned Spencer to you more than once over the years. And now all of a sudden, <laughs> but, but that's fine. That's fine. I don't need credit. I don't need credit. You let somebody else, you know, you listen to other people's recs. Okay. So you're reading Social Statics. Yeah. yeah so, so I actually, it didn't come from a recommendation. There was a little pamphlet I had bought. I would say about three years ago. You found I found it laying on the side of a road next to a yard sale. And that <laughs> is what made you realize this is probably a good book. <laughs> right. I mean, I would never listen to a human being tell me. There would have to be a <laughs> mystical experience behind it. No, but I, about like three years ago at an SFL conference, I bought a bunch of pamphlets that are just like, you know, maybe seven to 10 page books on different aspects of things like anarcho-capitalism and the like. And there was a pamphlet in that pile, I've got like a pile of about 30 of them. They've, they've just been sitting on my shelf. I haven't even touched them. And the other day I was just kind of rearranging and cleaning up. And one of them is called The Right to Ignore the State. And I saw that and I went, ooh, I got to read this right now. So I stopped what I was doing and sat down and just read that in one sitting. And I found out that it was a chapter from his book, Social Statics. And I was like, I, I got to have this. I got to have more. So I spent some time just looking up Herbert Spencer on Wikipedia, looking into his background and seeing what else he had put out there. And I ordered this particular book and I'm really enjoying it. And there's another one as well that you told me about and I got it on your recommendation. It's by David Friedman and it's called The Machinery of Freedom. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, so, I mean, this is just a great one for thinking about um, how free markets can solve a lot of the problems or, you know, meet a lot of the needs that we typically think some form of centralized central planning is necessary. What's cool about what's cool about that book is that it, it speculates about, it tries to answer really an unfair question that economists uh, do not need to answer and really like aren't really on their ground when they're answering. And that is how would the market do this? So, so the, the first half of the book is sort of laying out what's wrong with government and sort of the principles of why government fails and why markets succeed sort of in general. The second half of the book is basically speculation because when someone says, look, I can tell you based on economic understanding why governments will predictably systematically overspend, produce bad outcomes for the public. I mean, there's a whole branch of you know public choice theory covers this. It's the more you get into it, the more you realize government cannot succeed. It's built around the use of violence. It will always be an inferior way to accomplish things than a competitive open process. And then you can say, here's why markets do succeed. They channel things through the, you know, the, the prices convey information, incentives, all this stuff. And then someone will say, yeah, but take X, something that's always been done by government in my lifetime. Tell me how the market would do that, which is such an unfair question, because if if groceries had always been provided by the government, you know, like, say, the Soviet Union or something. Oh, well, tell me how how markets could possibly provide that. You couldn't you couldn't predict. You can't know markets. That's exactly what their beauty is. But even though it's an unfair question, David Friedman's like, I'll take a stab at it. Let's talk about it. 
how do you think police and courts and arbitration and defense and all these things, let's, let's talk about ways that they could be provided. It's a really cool, it's a really cool book of one of the, one of the great, um, great works. Hey, one thing you mentioned with the, the title of the Spencer, uh, pamphlet, ignore. It's so funny. The minute you say that I'm like, oh yeah, anything that has the word ignore in it, these days, I'm excited. I'm going to pick it up, which is a complete <laughs> reversal. When I was young, it was like ignoring things was burying your head in the sand, being afraid of the fight, being, you know, just like a slouch or whatever. And you want to, you, you see your engagement with ideas in the world around you as this kind of adversarial. And again, I'm, I still use this sort of uh, conflict war adversarial metaphor uh, often to, to great um, success personally, but I would have been attracted to anything other than the word ignore. But now as I have grown in my, my understanding of the way different systems and structures work, especially government, but other institutions, the power of ignoring something, it's just like Facebook. You feel so good when you have the self-control to ignore a comment thread and walk away. Like the power in that, the freedom in that versus this pressure to constantly engage. I think that's really powerful. And that's something that I, that took years to learn, but the power of ignoring things is tremendously undervalued. Oh, I I think it is absolutely vital for success. However you define it, um, to develop some specific standards for ignoring people, like under what conditions do you think it's appropriate to ignore people, to end the conversation, to simply walk away, to not listen to what they have to say. Now we all may have different standards, but you should definitely think about those standards. And most people just decide in the moment based on what they're what they're feeling. And, you know, the ironic thing about ignoring people or ignoring things is that the people who treat that with such fear, like, oh, but you don't want to ignore something because you might be missing out on, uh, you know, an, an, an important uh, fact that, you know, this is what C. Joy Bell C. calls, you know, living your life on the margin of error, making every decision based on a fear of there's something I might miss if I don't, you know, maintain an open mind for another five seconds and listen to what this person has to say. But in any given moment, there are millions of facts that you are choosing to ignore, whether you know it or not. So even if you say, I'm going to be the kind of person who listens to everyone and learns from everyone, because life is finite, because attention is finite, because energy, time, resources are finite, there are millions of people millions of facts, some of which are very important that right now you're ignoring because that is required for focus. So you definitely got to have standards and, and, and most people are too impulsive with it. I have completely reversed in that regard. Like my mantra is delete, shred, destroy, both literally and figuratively. Just the more things I can eliminate, the more things I can ignore, the happier I am. And the number of things that I ignore, it just far exceeds, you know, to the, to the hundredth power, whatever the number of things that I pay attention to. And that has been such a key to my success. I mean, everything from the number of tabs I have open to the number of emails in my inbox to the number of like the more things I can ignore. I mean, this is, this is why I pay somebody to mow my lawn. Not, not because I've figured out the financial pros and cons, but because mentally it's one more thing I get to ignore and it makes me so much happier and so much better. Um, I'm reading a few books. Well, I, I just ordered, I showed you, I sent you a picture of these the other day. I got four oh, new books. Hey, hey wait, oh, I, I, I got to interrupt you, man. I know it's rude, but there's one more thing I got to get out there because I know we share it in why, why did you say I know it's rude? Get that weak sauce out of here. This is, you know what this, I mean? is, this is Fridays with TK, man. 
Keep it real. I, there, there's nothing rude about interrupting Isaac Morehouse. Hey, I need to do you like LeBron did Curry when Curry attempted that layup after after the foul was called. LeBron yeah. blocked it and stared him down. Yeah. Like. Like you better get that out of here. Okay, so yeah, you can't you can't compare yourself to that. Was probably the single greatest thing LeBron has done in his career. Seriously, so the you, single so greatest sing, thing. You handpicked that one thing. So hey, I everybody who thinks we're LeBron haters, we just praised him for something. Okay, go I, ahead. I, I moved an inch closer to liking him. Um, and it, just an inch, half an inch, maybe a tenth of an inch. But anyway, um, breaking smart. That is also the other thing that I'm reading right now. I know you finished it. I'm reading it because of you, but I'm about halfway through some of the best material I've ever read. Mark Andreessen, uh, introduction, uh, Vankatesh Ryle. Is that how you say his name? Yeah, I think uh, so. Vankatesh Ryle. It, and it I know is, that's something you want to comment on. I know it. That's just some awesome stuff. Oh, absolutely. Well, so so I just I got four four new books, um, and then I got three others on my Kindle right now that I'm I'm kind of starting. Uh, Without Their Permission, which is the story of Reddit, recommended by my good friend Tim Shermack, whose book recommendations, though sometimes cheesy, uh, and, and I make fun of him for that, in fact, so much so that he actually sent me a book called The Book of Schmaltz, which was recipes of cooking with schmaltz. I didn't know schmaltz was a real thing. I, I told him he was schmaltzy sometimes. Uh, so Without That's Their awesome. Permission, the Reddit story. Neil Gaiman, you've been huge on this guy for a long time. And so I finally was like, yes. I need to read a Neil Gaiman book. So I went and just looked up whatever was the cheapest, highest rated paperback he had, the Graveyard book. Um, then I've got a, a Christopher Alexander book, Notes on the Synthesis of Form. I've talked, mm. We talked about him a lot last week. I uh, haven't started that yet. Really excited about it. And then I, got, I have High Output Management by Andrew Grove, which I've heard about a million times. I've never wanted to buy it. For some reason, I did. I hate management books. I hate business books. They pretty much <laughs> all suck. Um, but, I, but I win for it because every once in a while... Like probably the only thing that be could be considered a business book that I've really loved was Zero to One, and that's more like a book on philosophy almost, um, the philosophy of innovation perhaps. But anyway, so I've got those. I'm reading Be Slightly Evil by Venkatesh Rao, uh, the author of the Breaking Smart series on my Kindle right now, mm. and that's that's good, not great. It's sort of punctuated with some really good insights and observations. Uh, as a whole work, it's not nearly the level of greatness that I think Breaking Smart is, which incorporates many of the same ideas. But I just I fell in love with Rao because of that. And so I ordered uh, he's got two other books that I downloaded as well, Tempo and The Gervais Principle, which actually follows the the series The Office episode by episode and draws uh, principles of business from it. Oh, dude, that's super cool, man. So I, I got to ask you about my man, Neil Gaiman. How are you liking his novel so far? Haven't started. Just came in the mail, I think, yesterday. So I've got it. I've got it here in my stack. Yeah, man. Well, we, we should talk about Neil Gaiman in a future episode. Uh, that That is such a wonderful storyteller. But yeah, um, you've got some good stuff there, man. Hey, so I also got to say, after last week's episode about, you know, moving and the sadness of change and all this stuff. Now I just feel completely embarrassed and silly because like, like the day after that, it was just, okay, we're in a new house. It's just a house. Who cares? I, I immediately went back to my typical mindset about material things, houses. Like I've never cared what kind of office I'm in. I can be in a broom closet, whatever. I just immediately adjusted and am, and I'm totally fine now. And now, <laughs> now I'm getting emails from people. Hey, that people liked it by the way. They're like, Hey, I, I struggled with, you know, moving or loss or whatever. That was a really cool episode. <laughs> the more I do, the more I'm almost embarrassed. Like yeah, I made it sound like my life was ruined because we moved two miles away. It's not everyone. I'm fine. Hey, but, but what's funny is that probably played a significant role in you waking up the next day and being like, I'm over it. 
I know, think, it, it was kind of did. like a purge. I yeah. think it did. I felt like I wasn't allowed to just admit something that was really strange to me because it was contrary to my typical nature. The fact that I was sad about it, it felt weird and I didn't want to admit it. And I didn't want to like, like to myself and I didn't want to, you know, be a downer and just talking about it actually, I think kind of made it all go away. So thanks. <laughs> well, it, it, it illustrates the point that we discussed, man. When you when you demystify emotion, you don't treat the feeling of a particular sensation as if it's the, this dramatic thing that you got to apologize for. And you just be honest. You don't fight it. You just express it and, and learn how to process it. And you, that that's the best way to move on, man. So you illustrated the point. Good stuff, man. Awesome hey, I, I, I want to share a little annoyance that I suffered uh, yesterday or the day before. That is a oh, great, a great example of economics and the economic way of thinking and why it's so important and it matters so much to me. I hate non-price rationing. So anything that, you know, a lot of people have demands for something and there's a finite amount of that something and prices are a way to ration it so that, you know, those who demand it the most are willing to pay the most and they get, you know, they get access to it. And those who aren't willing don't pay for it. And so there you go. When you have non-price rationing, when prices are not part of the equation, they're not allowed to be um, for various reasons, whether legal or just people think that it's, you know, you shouldn't price certain things. The first, the typical way of non-price rationing is first come, first serve. Um, and there are other types of non-price rationing as well. I hate them all. They're all so much less efficient. I hate them one because they're not anonymous and impersonal. So, so people tend to get mad at each other because they see the person who got in line in front of them because it becomes personal. Oh, you know, you got to jump through hoops to, to get access to the thing that you want instead of just paying for it. I think they're, they're dehumanizing and they're, they're un, uh, uh, uncivil in that way. Cause they're not anonymous. Um, they're not transferable. Um, and they're so inefficient. And I experienced this. I want to take my son to this conference called PAX, which is a, like a video game convention. And the oh, other, yeah. there's like three of them across the country and the other ones, the dates didn't work out. So the one, and they never, they never tell you the date they announce on Twitter. That's all they do is they do one tweet. Tickets are now on sale. And then you, you don't even see the date of the event until you actually click to go in to, to buy the tickets. And then the tickets just go first come first serve. Uh, that's it. And so I'd heard about this like six months ago because I was trying to go to this other game convention and it wasn't for kids, blah, blah, blah. So I, I like do all this research. I follow them on Twitter. I set an alert on my phone and I never have alerts on my phone. I hate being alerted about social media apps. I don't even do those badge icons. Again, the more I can ignore, the better. I don't want to see that I have 52, you know, notifications on Facebook when I pull up my home screen. So, so I, I break my rule. I set this alert so that every time PAX tweets something, I can immediately check it. I check it multiple times every day, just in case the alert doesn't work. So I get an alert two days ago, badges are on sale for PAX West. I go to it nine minutes after the tweet was when I saw it. I go to it, I click and it puts me in a virtual waiting room and it says demand is so high. You're in a virtual waiting room to get tickets. And then I'm in there and about 20 minutes of sitting in the virtual waiting room, which by the way, meant that I had to keep my phone on awake, not let it go to sleep. And I couldn't do anything else on my phone that whole time. So I'm just sitting there and it's like 20 minutes in, it gives me a notification that says badges are very low. By the time you get to the purchase page, even if you've already filled out your information, they might be gone. Just a warning. 
Okay. Another hour goes by. I was in there for an hour and 27 minutes in this digital waiting room. Mm -hmm. I get in the badges for day one and day two are sold out. There's badges for the final day. I buy one. I check out. I actually got my son and I tickets. Ten minutes later, I see the tweet that says all tickets. Hey, your your, your mic's doing that thing. Your mic's doing that thing. When did it start doing it? Um, after you said after an hour and twenty minutes of waiting. Okay. Is it still doing it? Nope, not anymore. Yeah. All right. So anyway, I get the tickets. About ten minutes after that, uh, the tweet goes out that all tickets are gone. So I ended up getting them. Luckily, barely. Um. But here's what's insane about this. Then all these people all day long, parents who want to take their kids to it, people who were at work or at school and couldn't be just sitting following Twitter 24-7, they're all just tweeting how sad they are that they didn't get tickets. The tickets were $45. That's it. They were $45. I'm thinking to myself, how absurd is this? This non-price rationing. They have first come, first serve because the tickets are way too cheap. So everybody, whoever happens to get there first, gets to go to this event. Think about, people often think that prices are unfair because then the people with the most resources get to win. It's unfair. You need to make level the playing field. There is nothing I can think of that's more unfair than favoring those who are able over those who are willing. Someone who is willing, who is so excited that they would run five lemonade stands. They would sell their bike. They would do whatever to pay a thousand dollars to go to that event versus someone who's like, Oh, I saw the tweet. I might as well pick up a few tickets at 45 bucks a piece. So it favors those who just happen to be able, who happen to be first in line over those who are willing. And they have all these things that they crack down on scalpers. They don't want anyone to buy the tickets and then resell them, which is just horrible. What if someone came to me and said, this was my child's dream to go to this. Is there anything I can do? I'll, I'll let you stay in my timeshare down in wherever for two weeks with your family if you'll give me those PAX tickets that you got. Like that, they don't let that happen. They associate your name with the badge. They don't want any of that stuff going on. Non-price rationing is absurd and it ticks me off. There's my rant. And, and what's ironic about it is usually when, when non-price rationing is present, it's because of people feeling some kind of way about money, like money equals materialism, equals greed, equals superficiality. Yeah, what about time? Equals, you know, you're just favoring yeah. those with time over those with money or, or those willing to get the money or trade something for it, you know? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you simply don't know how people really feel about something until scarcity and sacrifice are involved, which is why, you know, you and I, you and I have talked about this before. It's why for me, it's not only important to ask yourself, what would you do if money were not an issue? But it's also important for you to ask yourself, what are you willing to do in spite of the fact that money is an issue? Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right, TK, I want to ask you something about failure. Oh man, I love this topic. Go for it. So we, I think we had a whole episode on this, uh, back in back last year. Um, but our colleague, Zach Slayback, who was the one who first recommended, by the way, uh, Breaking Smart and and Be Slightly Evil to me. Uh, great recommendation, Zach. He wrote a post on Medium a few weeks ago about the fetishization of failure. And I've seen other people, Mark Andreessen has talked about this, other people sort of uh, a backlash to the idea of, you know, fail forward or don't be afraid of failure. You know, if you're trying to do something new, you're going to fail several times. Failure can be good. You can learn from it. And Zach says that, you know, failure has sort of been fetishized, that people act like it's this wonderful thing and that's not a good mindset. Failure, you know, don't forget that failure your, 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 your mic's doing the thing. Uh, still? 
Nope. Now you're good. All right. I might have to, if that keeps happening, I might have to swap out to the other mic, which I don't like as much. Um, what do you think is failure currently fetishized, especially in sort of startup culture? You know, I, I think a lot of these types of articles become necessary because of perhaps imprecision in the way a good message is communicated, or to go back to something we discussed a few episodes ago, um, a lack of rigor in the way people read or listen to those messages. But but whoever is the cause, there are certainly these prevalent misunderstandings or oversimplifications that I think people like Zach Slayback and, and others, Mark Andreessen, need to address. So here's the deal. When people talk about failure being this good thing, I think the fundamental idea is two things, and, and, and Zach seems to you know acknowledge this, that number one, you shouldn't go out of your way to fear failure. Um, I have a similar thing that we've discussed about being a jerk, that you shouldn't be a jerk, but you shouldn't base your decisions on a, a fear of being perceived as a jerk, because both of those are going to lead to the same place, right? So in, in, in an analogous way, when it comes to failure, yeah, you don't really want to fail, but you shouldn't base your decisions on the fear of failure. You know, like don't don't be obsessively afraid of it to where it keeps you from experimenting, taking creative risk and so forth. Secondly, it's not failure. It's experience. It's experience and the willingness to learn from it that matters. And, and I think what Zach is reacting to, it's never a problem I've had, but I think what Zach is reacting to is this. This this fad of talking about failure and saying, oh, yeah, failure is good. Get some failures. Get some failures. We, we've seen like salespeople say this all the time. The one who, who builds up the most failures will be the most successful. But people don't follow up and say why. It's not just because you fail. It's because the way you process that failure makes you smarter, makes you wiser and decreases the likelihood of future success in certain areas. So, you know, I, I, I know why he wrote it. I don't need the article, but but I think given how terrible people are at reading and giving the, the sort of self-helpy, oversimplified way that failure is often presented, I can definitely see why it's needed. But if people don't read articles and get the obvious common sense out of them anyway, why are they going to do it with this one? I mean, I, my, my take is just, it's just, it just seems silly. Like the reason people say things like fail forward, failure is not that bad. Failure can be good is because it's counterintuitive. Our human intuition is we don't want to fail. That is hardwired into us. So we, it takes some counterintuitive thought to get us over what the real problem is, which is not failure or not failure. It's the identification with failure at activities with failure as a person. And that identification of failing at things we do as I must be a failure, it's hard to get over that. That's why all these messages go out there and like, hey, you know, I mean, it is, it is a fact it is a true fact that the majority of successful business people failed multiple times with multiple businesses before they got that one right. Even the, the businesses that work, they have many more failures than they've had successes. That's just a statistical reality that's good to be reminded of. And I think the culture that doesn't fear that and that actually treats that playfully and almost flips it on its head and treats it almost like a badge of honor, that's one of the greatest things that has resulted in this amazing culture in places like Silicon Valley. I saw a guy in Quora recently, his bio said, 
uh, one tie, one win, three losses. Uh, entrepreneur, one tie, one win, three losses. And I think that really exemplifies flipping the the intuition and saying most people, I, w- I would never want to tell people that I failed at three businesses. I would just say entrepreneur successfully launched one business. But there's this cool thing happening where it's like this transparency saying, hey, I had one tie, I've, I won one, and I lost three. And so when he's writing answers on Quora questions, other young aspiring entrepreneurs see that and they're like, okay, it's all right. My thing just failed. So what? It's probably going to. I don't think there's anything but good can, that can come out of that. And I think it's a, a solution in search of a problem to say, well, don't remember, failure really is bad. We all know that. That's why the fail forward, don't worry about failure stuff is so necessary because we know failure is bad. No one sets out to fail. I mean, maybe there's some cheesy guy who's going to way too many startup conferences who's going around saying, hey, you should hire me because I've failed 25 times. And like, that's it, you know? Okay. Well, he's obviously misreading things. That's a problem of him having bad judgment. That's not a problem. Oh no, people are, are promoting failure too much and it's leading the wrong direction. I just think it's one of those things. It's, it's just like a trendy, let's be, let's be counter counterintuitive because now everyone's sort of getting on this train of separating themselves from this fear of failure, but let's, let's make sure that they maintain a fear of failure. Are you kidding me? Humans are, you never have to tell people, oh, you need to have more fear of death. You know, like that's, that's just who humans are. It's natural. Sorry, Zach. I don't want to rip on you. Uh, your article, there was nothing in the article that I think was bad. I just don't necessarily think it's actually a problem that exists out there that people are fetishizing failure. So what's interesting is you and I have the reverse opinion on this. I think there is one thing in the article that is bad. Um, but I actually think it is needed relative to a certain kind of audience. And, and I'm not going to say Zach is addressing a non-existent problem. I mean, you and I talked about this when, when we discussed uh, optimistic messages or messages of hope, how there are certain kinds of people that will not receive those mes- messages, no matter how obvious they are, unless you express them in a kind of cynical way. So some people I can say to them, hey, man, keep your head up and don't quit. And they'll, and they'll take it as it is. There are other people that wouldn't let me say that, and I would have to, you know, say for 10 minutes, talk about how much life sucks, and then tell them to keep their head up, and they'll be like, okay, okay, this guy knows, you know? So so it's not just about the message, it's the frame within which it's delivered, and I think what Zach is doing is he's providing a frame that's going to help people understand what's useful from these positive messages on failure while at the same time acknowledging that these people need, you know, what these people need to see acknowledged. So I, I actually think it is useful. Yeah, that, that's fair. So sort of a, a reminding of the context that this is the reason why not being afraid of failure matters because failure itself is not fun. Uh, it's not that failure is some wonderful thing and you, and you feel weird because you don't enjoy it and everyone's telling you you should you shouldn't enjoy it. You should avoid it. It sucks. But that's exactly why the advice that says, don't let it kill you matter. I, I, I can see that. I can see that. Okay. You, you have a way of finding, I feel like I could throw any article or any book or anything at you. Um, and you would convince me that it was, uh, really good or at least pretty good. I, I trick you into thinking that until you read it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You have done that a couple of times. I've read stuff and like, what? Hey, um, 30 second praxis pitch sponsor spot. TK, give us a give us a 30 second pitch on Praxis. Who should do okay. Praxis and why? Okay, but fix your mic because it's doing that thing again. Yeah. How, how's that? There you go. God. Awesome, man. If if you want to wake up every morning 
and feel good about what you get to do for a living. If you want to if you want to say, my gosh, I get to do this and get paid for it. We're the kind of program for you. If you don't want to be just another person who lives their life like a cog on the wheel, if you don't want to just do what you do in order to keep somebody else from being mad at you, but you want an opportunity to get an education that isn't going to ask you for a whole lot of your time, a whole lot of your money. It isn't going to ask you to give up four years of your life or go into massive debt. And you want a chance to see what it's like to actually do something with minimal risk. Praxis is the program for you. And more importantly, if you want to just cut straight to the chase and, and talk about what education is for, which is really about using knowledge as a tool to design the lifestyle that you want to create the kind of experience you want to have. If you just want to cut through all of the middleman stuff and get the kind of knowledge that's going to help you set your life up the way you want it to be, this is the kind of program that you want to do. Because we're not just going to teach you things that we think is important. We're not just going to say, hey, learn this and we'll send you out into the world with the hope that it's going to work. We're going to say, what do you want to do? And we're going to give you an opportunity to do it that you couldn't otherwise obtain. And we're going to educate you while you do it to, so that you can get better at doing that opportunity. And when you're done with the program, we're going to get you a job where you get to do something that you love. Dude, your, your words are so powerful. You have the ability to bend time. That was the best 30 seconds uh, that I've heard in a while. It was, I don't know how many seconds it really was, but it was uh, a, a, a long 30 seconds. <laughs> You're making me, is that, is that like a good five minutes? But <laughs> <laughs> hey. well, you're making me think of Legend of Korra, man. I'm a time bender. Oh, Go ahead. That's a good series. Hey, I'm going to yeah. swap out my mic. So while I'm doing that, um, why don't you share some, you were just at a foundation for economic education seminar uh, for, I think it was for teens and entrepreneurship, economics of entrepreneurship. Uh, you want to share any thoughts or observations you had from uh, from that conference or from the, the people you were talking with? Absolutely. So it was a Foundation for Economic Education seminar on the economics of entrepreneurship. It was in Austin, Texas at St. Edwards University. And the, the aim of the seminar was to help young people think about what entrepreneurship is in an unconventional way and how a basic understanding of economic ideas uh, can not only help them think entrepreneurially in everyday life, but but it can also just allow them to uh, to experience the benefits of creativity even in school. Most of the uh, all of the attendees were high school students, and you know some of them had sponsors with them who who uh, who told them about the conference or wanted to bring them bring them there. One of the really awesome things about teaching at this at this seminar was just how open minded and how filled with hope and anticipation about the future these young people were. You know, there, there's a sad truth about the adult world, and that sad truth is that anxiety about the future, fear of, of risk-taking, fear of not being able to survive, dominates so much of what we do that many adults have had the fire already stolen out of them. And you could say it's because of naivete, but you can also say that it's just a part of what it means to be young. The, these young people, these students, they still believed in the possibilities of life and the possibilities of their world. And they were wide open to learn. And, and they weren't there in these classrooms because someone made them come. 
they were there because they really wanted to know about economics and entrepreneurship. So I had a chance to not only talk with them about what we do with Praxis and the options that we're creating for people, but I had the chance to talk with them about how entrepreneurship is a, a strategy for social change. And you could see that was a new idea for a lot of the young people. They Their only concept of how to change the world or how to create more freedom was, was uh, involving themselves in philanthropy or involving themselves in politics. But I was able to give them a lot of good stories, a lot of good examples and insights. And so was Brian Brinberg and Ann Bradley on how most of what we love about life is the result of entrepreneurial efforts, that whenever you do entrepreneurship, you are actually creating more ways that people can enjoy freedom and fight for freedom. And so it was really good to see that concept come alive in the minds of those young people and hear them talk about what they want to do with that idea in their real life, in their, in their real lives. Hey, so how's my mic sound now? Sounds good, man. All right, so I just swapped out to this Blue Yeti, and I, it's supposed to be a nicer, better mic, but I don't like it at all. That ATR, uh, our Audio-Technica, I think it's uh, 2100, cheaper, but man, it's just, this thing picks up everything. So if I tap on the table, you can hear that, and it's just, it picks up everything in the room, but anyway. Uh, but it, the, the cord apparently on that other one is starting to, to short out. Um, all right, so, did you have any moments at the seminar that were particularly like, cause, cause I find when I go out and I'm around a bunch of people of a certain group, like I've done fee seminars before and other things every time it makes me feel a little bit older, but I have observations about an age group or a generation, like something new, like, wow, there is something different about this generation than other generations of 17, 18 year olds or whatever it might be. Did you have any sort of observations about, I guess this would be generation Z, uh, the, the generation younger than millennials. Any observations that made you feel like uh, you were definitely of a different generation? Oh my gosh, uh, <laughs> about every aspect of how they, they, they uh behaved and interacted amongst themselves about every aspect. But, you know, I'll tell you that there was a young lady there who 15 years old, and she told me the story of how when she was in seventh grade, she said to her parents, I'm not really learning anything from school. I feel like they're wasting my time and making me memorize things that I don't really care about. I want to do homeschooling. And her parents says, well, what does that mean for us? What would we need to do? And she, she said, she basically told them, all I need you to do is make sure I don't die and stay out of my way. I'll handle all the learning. <laughs> and this young lady has taught herself so much about history, about programming, about entrepreneurship. And it was unbelievable to, to see the social intelligence she was demonstrating in that environment, the entrepreneurial intelligence she has demonstrated in the job opportunities that she's found for herself to get experience in spite of her age, which is supposed to be a big limitation, how, how much of an intellectual she was because she was involved in the process of finding things out on her own. And she was a great illustration of just how common genius can be when you trust the spontaneous order of allowing a child to pursue their own interests. But to answer your question more directly about what was distinct about this generation, I think she captured something about this generation that wasn't as true of mine and the right, the one right under me. And that is, they have what uh, Vankatish calls the hacker ethos. They, they, they are creating what they want 
in a way that just doesn't take the status quo into account like our generation does. We know that the status quo is something that must be reckoned with and, and we try to figure out how to get its permission or how to overcome it. But this younger generation that subscribes to this hacker ethos, they, they just sort of cut right through it in a way that I'm, I'm still just beginning to understand. Am I making sense at all? Oh, absolutely. I, I am so bullish on, I guess, Generation Z until somebody comes up with a better or worse, cheesier name. Um, in fact, one of the, I, I have a blog post, one of my favorites actually. Uh, it's the obedience entitlement matrix and how it relates to generational differences. And I just see something in this generation. They, they don't have, they're not obedient. So they're very uh, independent, rebellious. They just, they wanna do things their own way and they expect to find ways to do that. They're used to a world of customization, everything from the apps on their phone and all the things they interact with. And they demand customization, but they're also not entitled. So to be rebellious and disobedient and to demand things, but to believe that someone owes them to you is not a very good combination. That's kind of the, uh, the baby boomers, um, rebellious, but also entitled. But this Gen Z, these young you know, kids sort of 18 and under, I guess, right now, 20 and under maybe, um, they don't seem to be. And I think part of it's maybe because the generation in front of them, maybe their older siblings or, or people they've seen who have expected to follow the rules their whole life, go get a college degree and a master's degree, and then they'll automatically get a house that appreciates in value and all the things that the baby boomers experienced and told millennials to do, most of which failed. And so now all these millennials are like 35, living in the, the parents' basement with debt, they're bitter, they're frustrated, they're a barista at Starbucks and they wanted to be an artist or whatever it might be. The younger kids see this and so they, they don't think anybody owes them anything. They actually grew up where their parents' houses' values crashed. They grew up after the 08 crash where nobody thought that a house would automatically appreciate, that a 401k would automatically appreciate, that a degree credential would automatically make you really wealthy and successful. They've seen that that's not the case. And so they don't come with that entitlement. They don't believe that the world automatically improves for them just because they are the next generation. But yet they do have that demanding um, desire for what they want and that willingness to kind of rebel. I'm, I'm really excited about this generation. Yeah, and because of that attitude, they're looking more to technology and innovation as the solution rather than um, a traditional leader for, for some politicians to swoop down from the sky and say, I will give you what you want. They feel like if you just get out of my way and leave me alone and, and, and you know, let me close the door in my room so I don't have to deal with you, I can figure out a solution to this in about six hours. And yeah. that, that, that's amazing. It's oh, exciting. I absolutely love it. Absolutely love it. Um, their ability to ignore everything that's supposed to be really important, you know, town hall meetings and politics and all that. They don't care. They've tailored their life to be able to tune that stuff out. They don't have to listen to the news broadcast uh, they can find exactly what they want. They can tailor their news feed so that they only see things they're interested in. And I think that is a good thing. I love it. Um, all right. I want to I chat about something that I've, I've been fascinated with for a long time. And I wrote about it once and I thought it was really groundbreaking and interesting and nobody really seemed to care. Um, <laughs> but I just saw today somebody else posting about it on Facebook. And that is this concept of morality, individual morality versus what I call moral technology, or maybe you could say institutional morality. And 
I have long held these two beliefs that it took me a long time to, to reconcile. Um, and that is that, you know, being a moral, a good and ethical and honest, you know, truth, truthful person, uh, hardworking, all the, all the traditional morals as an individual is wonderful and the most likely way to lead you to your own individual success and fulfillment. But at the same time, that society-wide, there is no prerequisite that society be full of moral people or even moral leaders or people need to somehow become better and more honest and more trustworthy and everything else in order for society to improve. I don't believe that's true at all. I don't think society needs better people to be a better society. In fact, I think we can have better moral outcomes in society even if people are no better at all, possibly even if they're worse. And I, I somebody, I, you know, you see a lot of people arguing that, you know, freedom, are we good enough for liberty? Liberty requires people who are highly moral. You've got to become an honest person and help everyone else become good people. I don't know how you can help someone become a good person. It sounds scary and paternalistic, but <laughs> as a prerequisite for us to live free as a society, I don't buy that. Um, and I'll tell you some reasons why in a minute, but I want to give you a chance to, what are, what are your thoughts? And I don't know if you've, you've wrestled with this issue at all before on ethics and morality as an individual versus like, does society need to be made up of better people in order for it to improve? Mm. Yeah. So, you know, I think at an individual level, obviously your life will improve as you move in the direction of integrity. And I also think it's true to say that society would benefit from you striving to become the best possible version of yourself. So if you decide that, you know, you're just going to waste your time and energy, you're just going to, you know, live in the grip of fear or what have you, uh, live in the grip of fear and cynicism, I think society is to some extent deprived of the contribution you would make if, if you made different kinds of choices. However, I agree with you completely here that the existence and maintenance of a free society does not depend on everyone being at a certain level of character. In fact, um, one of the great beauties of the free market is that we can pretty much get everywhere we want to be. Let me just take the pretty much out of it. We can get where we want to be simply by relying on people's natural self-interest and the way in which those self-interests will align with them getting what they want and us getting what we want. In, in other words, being ecological beings, you can't get what you want from an environment unless you're willing to put something back into the environment that benefits the environment. And I, I think that's the beauty of free markets, you know? So yeah. I, I agree with you 100%. Yeah, I would say that, you know, a, a system where somebody has a monopoly on violence and gets to control people, that's the one that, it, it, I don't think even if everybody is an angel, then it's unnecessary anyway. I don't think it's ever necessary or beneficial or preferable if people are good or bad. Doesn't, to, to me, it's worse in both cases. But for it to be less bad, People would have to be unreasonably pure, especially like those who wield the power. They would have to be these angelic beings. C.S. Lewis has this great quote. He says, uh, you know, I, uh, Aristotle thought some people were only fit to be slaves. I agree. My problem with slavery is that no one is fit to be a master. And that's kind of the negative side. OK, this is why you know, governments uh, are not going to end up doing good things because people aren't angels and you give them a whole ton of power, they're going to abuse it. But markets, on the other hand, don't require people 
to be good. And I'm gonna give an analogy, and I think this is really powerful. This is why I use the word moral technology, because I think it helps see the metaphor. I don't think someone born today is more, uh, is, is on average physically stronger and more capable than someone born, let's say 200 years ago. Maybe a little bit, maybe a tiny bit, but on average, a person born today is not physically stronger and, and dramatically more you know, uh, physically fit than someone born 200 years ago. I don't think someone born today is dramatically more moral, honest, upstanding, and ethical than someone born 200 years ago, just in terms of the raw material. But in both cases, I think someone today can accomplish orders of magnitude more physical feats than someone 200 years ago, even though they're no stronger. So someone today can move thousands of tons of dirt uh, in an amount of time that would take multiple lifetimes for somebody 200 years ago. They're no stronger, but they have capital. They have technology. The accumulation of capital, of technology, enables someone today to accomplish far more. I don't think people today are smarter on average from birth genetically than people 200 years ago, but they can answer questions and solve problems that somebody 200 years ago never would have had a chance to solve because of the technology, the capital we have, the computers, the search engines, all the things we have access to. So even though we are no better genetically, we can do better things. I think morally, it's not so different. Someone born today is no more or less likely to be a better person than someone born 200 years ago. However, the likelihood that someone born today is going to be in favor of slavery is almost zero. And someone born 200 years ago is incredibly, incredibly high because the technology, the institutional framework they were in, the incentives they faced were different. So they're going to behave different. People today versus 200, 500 years ago, certainly we have far fewer wars than we used to have, not because we are more moral as individuals, but because our moral technology, our institutional technology has evolved and the incentives have changed. So people have a greater incentive for peace than they used to. They have a greater incentive to behave in good ways, even if their heart of hearts is no more moral. I think that is so important to understand, so crucial because it highlights just how valuable markets are that they bring about moral ends, even for people who are not good people. And to succeed in the market, you have to do things that create value for other people, even if you're a jerk on the inside. And I think over time, that cascading effect starts to make us society-wide do things that are more moral and mitigate the horrible immoralities that are occurring, but not because we're better people. You feel me? Oh, yeah. Now, I'd like to hear you address um, a, a potential objection to that. You know, so most people would say, all right, the way you just set the world up, this picture of the world you painted rests on a moral foundation. You, we, we can say it, it's the non-aggression principle or it, it's recognizing the superiority of voluntary exchange over, you know, coercive systems of governance. And if the majority of people lack the character to acknowledge that, if the majority of people say, no, I just want what I want, even if I have to stiff someone, then that puts us in a position where it would seem, at least on the surface, that we have to turn back that tide and get the majority of people to see things in a different way because 
the very existence of these free markets requires people being willing to acknowledge the superiority over them. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, of them. Yeah, so we've talked a lot about the, the relationship between ideas and technology that between, you know, is it beliefs that bring about social change or is it some ex exogenous factor or do the beliefs create that innovation? Does the innovation create the beliefs? And we, we talked at length about this in a, in a previous issue and I think they feed each other. But I would say at the end of the day, beliefs are the thing that determines ultimately the kind of institutions we live in. But I don't think that means you have to be really, uh, you know, you have to be selfless and you don't not greedy and you have to be hardworking and you have to be honest and you have to be all these other morals and all the people in the society have to be or somehow leaders have to be. I don't think any of that matters. I think there's one belief that matters. At the end of the day, I think there is one belief that matters and that is the necessity, the belief in the necessity of violence, of, of a monopoly on violence, not just of violence, of a monopoly of violence, the belief in the myth of authority. And that belief is in degrees. It's not just a yes or no belief. So the belief that some group of people need to be given the ability to kill, maim, cage, shoot at will everyone else in order to maintain authority. This is the Hobbesian idea, this belief that you need this Leviathan, this group of people with the freedom, complete power to control, coerce everyone else, otherwise we'll have chaos. And some people believe that Leviathan needs less amounts of power applied to less areas, and some believe it needs more. It will always seek to maximize what it can get, and what it can get is limited only by people's belief of what is necessary. Not whether or not government's good. People don't think it's very good. They don't think it's very efficient. They can think it's an evil, but as long as they think it's a necessary evil, it will exist and it will get as large as it can until people think doing that, okay, government, that's unnecessary for government, uh, but maybe some form of it is necessary. Until it's, it's understood that it's not necessary at all and to the extent to which that's understood, and that could be understood either explicitly by ideas or just through experiences where you just start to realize the irrelevance of the state. And I think that's the more likely path that things are moving actually aggressively right now, right under our feet. It's just the state is less and less important to people's daily lives uh, in, in the United States in many ways. Um, and it's sort of being delegitimized. Their belief in its necessity is going away. The myth that the state is necessary is harder and harder to maintain as other things replace it. Does that answer the question or does that sound like a cop out to you? Yeah, I, I think it addresses it. I mean, we could always go further. Um, it, it makes me think of, you know, some recent conversations we've had about what we call the matrix model of evangelism, where you take this sort of subversive approach of hacking into a system and altering it, in, you know, in this sort of roundabout way, rather than trying to stop every individual on the streets and say, hey, do you know you're part of the matrix and you need to be unplugged? Do you know that even though we think we're free, we're really slaves? And here's what the real truth is. And, you know, like, like this evangelical approach of yeah. spreading the word to as many people as possible. Yeah, what, what's the real way that the matrix world was overthrown? It was a small number of people, a remnant, who understood. And what did they do? They unplugged and then they, they started reproducing human babies outside of the system. And so it was the generations who grew up free that were the ones who were going to take 
you know, to, to make those systems of domination crumble. The ones who are in the matrix and not interested in getting out there, you know, you're not the one, Morpheus wasn't going around trying to, trying to unplug everybody. He was looking for one or two people to go and build this alternative, you know, community of, of Zion outside of the matrix so that it would grow to the point where the matrix system would be inferior to it and would, and would crumble. And that's how I see the building of civil society. The building of civil society is what reduces the power of the state, not direct efforts to reduce the power of the state. You know, it's almost like being in um, and the generational a box. analogy applies too. By the way, like kids who grow up uncoerced, unschooled, un—they don't have to understand all these ideas in order to be opposed to someone coercing them. They're just going to grow up free. That's that's. I think it's a generational thing. It's gonna. It's not going to be people today all of a sudden reversing position as much as people being born more free than the people before them. Sorry, I interrupted you though. Go ahead. No, no, no. You're absolutely right. I mean, I just wrote a recent blog post about this about how no revolution in the entire history of humanity has ever been the product of getting the majority of people to behave in a way that some individual thought was rational. It, it's always about subversively hacking into the incentive structure and using creativity to introduce tiny bits of change, even in the face of great resistance and great opposition, you know, but where we often get stuck is we sit back, we look at the world and we say, people are so stupid. People are so irrational. So in order to get anything done, what we got to do is argue people into being rational. It's like, like, hey, either you believe they're stupid or you don't. Like, either you believe they're irrational or, or you don't. Like, you were moving in the right direction when you dismiss them as, all, as irrational. Now what you have to do is figure out how do you play the game? How do you play the game when you're going up against an irrational opponent, you know, and, 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 and rely more on your creativity rather than your ability to get everybody to buy into your arguments like within one generation and use that creativity to change the incentive structures that dictate behavior. Hey, so um, we've got a few listener questions. You wanna to try to hammer through those? Yeah, man, although there was something about bandwagons that uh yeah. that, that i thought you you mentioned we, we can we can do that later or a different time or not you, at all you we want well all i was gonna say i was actually gonna ask you what, what are your thoughts on this so i was at the sports bar a couple weeks ago and it was while the thunder were playing the warriors and there was this guy sitting next to us and we're all cheering for the warriors to make this epic comeback and turn the series around and i want to see them cap off their amazing season with a you know uh championship and this guy sitting there he was like mildly cheering for the thunder. And I said, man, who's your team? He's like, oh, he's like, yeah, I don't really care about the thunder. You know, I'm not a fan of any of the teams in the East. The East is terrible. So we agreed on that. And he's like, but I don't want to see the Warriors win it. And I said, why not? He said, because every, you know, they're just, now you got all these fake warrior fans. Now you got all these people just all of a sudden saying that they're warrior fans and coming out of the woodwork. It's just the bandwagon. And there's something that we all understand when we see a, sort of the bandwagon effect that we want to re react against it and dislike a team just because of that. But I thought there was something really, really sad about it. This guy's like, I'm a longtime NBA fan. I love the game, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's had its years where it was down. Blah. And I said, yeah, but those people, I mean, isn't that what you want? A bandwagon? Like people won't watch, casual fans won't watch the NBA unless there's something fascinating and captivating to watch. So of course, when a team breaks the all-time single season record and does it in a way that we've never seen before, when someone breaks the all-time three-point record by like two and a half times the previous record, you know, before him, 
that's unusual. It's going to draw in casual fans who never express themselves and they're going to identify with the most interesting thing going on. So just because other people are suddenly interested in your sport and they're interested in the thing that is the most interesting thing happening in your sport, it seems kind of sad to me, like you're, you're giving up a chance to participate in enjoying greatness just because you're upset that newcomers also happen to like it. And there just seems to be something that's wrong about that. There's something that I can relate to. I mean, like when the Boston Red Sox, all of a sudden everybody was a part of Red Sox Nation. Uh, yes, it was incredibly annoying, but that's mostly because all Boston sports teams uh, are annoying, with the exception of the Patriots, who I love because everyone else hates. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I get it. It can be annoying, I guess. But it just felt like this guy had no good reason to deprive himself of appreciating this, except he was stubbornly like annoyed. He was at the one hand complaining that not enough people have followed the NBA through the years when he was following it after Jordan, you know, when there was like a drought. But then when people do start following it, because there's another interesting, amazing thing happening, now he's annoyed by that too. And it just seems sort of strange. Like, so what's wrong with bandwagons? Like, jump on. Bandwagons can be incredibly fun. That's where the party is. Right. The, the fact that people, stop, people stopped watching after Jordan retired is already evidence that those fans were probably bandwagons, bad bandwagon fans. But, you know, it's funny to me because you hear this kind of talk every year, like the Super Bowl, the World Series, the NBA Finals, where, you know, people who don't watch the game all year are excited about this event. You know, even me, I, I'm, you know, my Bears aren't in it, but whoever's in it, I'm, I'm picking a team and I'm voting for it. And what's always been funny to me is this expectation that if my team has been eliminated, I shouldn't allow myself to enjoy this event by picking someone and rooting for them. So everyone who knows me knows that the Chicago Bulls are my team. And I was heartbroken this year when they didn't make the playoffs. But they're not in the playoffs. And I can't make them be in the playoffs using magic. So we have the teams that we have. And because I enjoy basketball – I'm going to watch some games. And when I watch some games, I'm going to vote for or against someone. And, and so did I, you know, did I grow up watching the Golden State Warriors? No. <laughs> if the Golden State Warriors were playing against the Chicago Bulls, would I vote for the Warriors? No. But there are only two teams left. And if I'm going to enjoy it, then I have to watch the two teams that are playing and pick someone to get excited about when they score. Does that make me a bandwagon fan? Sure. But what's my other option? Being loyal to the integrity of being a Bulls fan and folding my arms and say, no, I will not watch the NBA finals. Even though I love the game of basketball, I will not watch it because I don't want to be a bandwagon guy. So that, that's the first thing that I think is silly. The second thing is this doesn't just apply to sports. This applies to everything in life. Yeah. People, you know, people don't go around talking about the problem of poverty all the time. But what happens is you have a few loyal um, insiders who are constantly working on the issues. And most people are just living their lives, ignoring it. And then something big happens. And there's a big news story where, you know, some tragedy befalls a particular person or nation or someone goes, you know, bankrupt that we all, you know, know about. And then there's a national discussion where everyone jumps on the bandwagon and starts having debates about topics that, for the most part, are left to a small group of insiders who bore us, you know, most of the days of the year. So I would say for the most part, 
most of our conversations are expressions of this bandwagon phenomenon. You know, and I would think, and I don't think there's anything irrational about it uh, and anything wrong with it, but I totally get if you are just not interested in something and all of a sudden it becomes the it thing and everyone's jumping on the bandwagon and you're like, okay, not only am I not interested in it, but now I'm actually disinterested in it because I'm kind of annoyed how over the top everybody else is obsessed with it. I get that. And I, don't, I think that makes sense to me. Like that makes sense to say, I've never been interested in this. There's nothing happening today that makes me more interested. Like if you truly just hate basketball, you're probably going to hate it even a little bit more when it gets more popular because you have to hear about it all the time. I get that. But what I don't get is somebody like this guy who loves the game and is almost making this claim like he's almost depriving himself of the enjoyment of, of liking something just because no one is acknowledging that he was there first. No one is willing to say, hey, man. I wish I could get excited about the Warriors now, now that they're about to break this record, but I can't because I wasn't watching basketball for the last three years. You were, you get to have the fun. It's almost like that's what he's asking for. You know, it's this weird thing. Like I want people to pay attention to the things I love. And then when they do, you're like mad that they don't acknowledge that you were there first. And I, I just don't think you win in that way, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, man, let's do some reader, uh, some listener questions. All right, so I just I know some people gave you some on Facebook. Uh, I didn't catch all those. I didn't write them down, but I have three that came in through the Ask Isaac forum on the website, uh, IsaacMorehouse.com. If you want to submit any, there's a little form there called Ask Isaac. So uh, we've got two from Peter Niger. The first one, do you think the Praxis business model can be applied to other areas where college acts as a gatekeeper? For example, sports. Many athletes are discovered by professional teams because of their time in college. Can this be replaced by a Praxis-like organization? Do you have plans to branch Praxis out into sports, art, and other areas that are not as business startup oriented? Um, TK, you want to you want to take a stab at that? I know you want a Praxis basketball team. <laughs> I want to Praxis minor leagues. I want to Praxis NBA franchise. Peter, you are my man, and I absolutely love this question. Yeah, and, and to some degree, we see this happening in, in certain sports where, you know, uh, going to college and doing well there is not the way you get into the pros. This, it, this is not how it works in golf. Uh, it's not how it works in hockey. And, and, and if it weren't for – Or the, in baseball. The, yeah, if it weren't for the pro leagues making a bunch of rules um, that essentially make college athletics more um, – valuable than they would be, especially in basketball, making you go for a year. Um, I think this trend would have, I mean, we were seeing it. That's why they made the rule. All the best players were just skipping, you know, college altogether, but sorry, go ahead. No, no, you're, you're, you're right on point. I mean, we could go down the list. This is also true of tennis. So I would say that the NBA model of going pro is actually the minority and, and whether or not that particular model will change. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, it, it would require me to do a little bit of the kind of uh, thinking that Friedman does in the machinery of uh, freedom. Um, it, it'd be interesting to see how that how, how that changes, you know. But right now, there are so many rules that the uh, rule changes that the NBA has had that well, so, I, I don't see it happening. So here's term. something I've been thinking about. I think there is a tremendous opportunity for innovation in football with the NFL. Um, it's going to the cultural uh, beliefs around college and the aura of college football is so is so great that this would be hard. But in terms of there is definitely an opportunity to be exploited. The more the NCAA, you know, uh, refuses to allow um, their student athletes, first of all, to, to get paid, but not even they're not even allowed to like sell jerseys or do anything, even though they're dedicating their life to this, they could get an injury that makes them never able to go to the pros. 
they're not able to do you know commercials for the local car dealership in their college town their coach can uh other you know um they can you know the school can get money for this stuff but the players can't so that you have these players who have this huge amount of economic value that they're prohibited from receiving also the rules about when they can train how they can train when they can talk to scouts and all this different stuff are really restrictive so i feel like there's this opportunity in the nfl 18 year olds are just not capable of playing in the nfl there's just a physical transformation over a two three four year period in college in constant weight training and all this stuff playing with guys who are bigger and faster to get you ready for the even bigger and faster guys in the nfl i don't i think physically the transition in basketball is totally doable in, in the nfl the physical transition seems really steep so it seems to me there's a there's a huge market opportunity to create some one two three four five year program some alternative where you play it's like a league you train you scrimmage you can do anything you want to you can do all kinds of you know all you do is train in a certain thing and you can show the scouts and you can go around instead of college you just make it basically a get ready for the nfl uh camp it's a two it's a transition for top players so that they can they can make money in the process they can get paid they can train without as many restrictions they can do all kinds of stuff to feed them into the nfl uh, I could see something like that being really successful if the sort of cultural barriers um, weren't there. But but on oh, the- and, and, and one one implication I love of that is you wouldn't see this silliness of players not being able to receive compensation for their efforts as athletes. You yeah. know, like th- there's always this question of should athletes be paid? And we're not even asking the question as it's really being dealt with. The real question is. Should they be forcibly prevented from receiving money from the people who want to pay them, who already want to pay them? You know, that's the crazy thing. Yeah. Yeah, People want to pay them to come show up at their events and do all this stuff. And it's like they can't they're not allowed (laughs) to do that. Um, So I would love to see that in terms of the broader question, though. I think this is what we are seeing and will see. College started as a specific thing for clergy, basically, universities, and then for sort of intellectual clergy and teachers, and then maybe some scientists, and then some engineers, and then all of a sudden it became everything, business, marketing, arts, uh, general studies, like college just became this catch-all. All 18 to 25-year-olds just go there, no matter what they expect to do in their life, and they pay 50, 100 grand, and it's just like supposed to be necessary for everything. It became this massive bundle. And I think the unbundling of the university is what we're seeing right now, just in its early stages, and it's gonna increase, it's gonna continue. So uh, you don't need a CS degree anymore. In fact, it'd be kind of crazy to get a CS degree in most places, computer science. You can go to a 12 week coding school and get hired on at 80 grand, 100 grand a year immediately afterwards. So you're, you're here's one major that's being unbundled, remove that major, unbundle it. You know, take Praxis. For people who are going into generic things like business or marketing, those degrees don't do anything for you in terms of teaching you how to do that. And they don't do anything anymore. They're decreasingly doing anything and giving you a signal that helps you get a job. So forget that. If that's what you were going to major in, go do something like Praxis where you can go apprentice and jump right into that job after nine months. Um, And I think you'll see chipping away like arts. I mean, already, journalism is well known as if you want to be a journalist, don't get a journalism degree. Um, Now, most journalists will go get a degree in something else. But what really matters is what they write. I think film and the arts, this is already pretty well known. A master's of fine arts is not the gateway into Hollywood (laughs) that, you know, some people may have them. But 
they just happen to have them. That's not what got them in. So I think increasingly you'll see, and I've seen some film apprenticeship programs, you'll see one by one, these things starting to get plucked away until the things that the universities are actually good at are the only thing remaining. And in the case of some universities, that would be nothing. Nothing will be left. Many universities are truly not good at anything. Some are amazing at certain things. Some, you know, the MITs of the world and the whatever, you know, they've got their research thing or their core thing that they're amazing at. And they're a great value for people who are doing that. But there's so much crap that's been lumped on. And I think those are going to get plucked off. Sports is going to be a hard one. I mean, I truly think the only reason a great number of schools exist and grow is because they have football programs. And alumni give millions and millions and millions of dollars to their schools because of this feeling of school spirit. And football, having seeing people talk about your program, your school on ESPN nationally and be at the campus that you went to. You know, if you leave school 20 years later and they're sending you little flyers with pictures of the campus and saying, remember how much fun you had? Give us a bunch of money. That's a much harder sell than when you get to go sit in a luxury booth and get the feeling, I remember when I went to this school and you see it on Sports Center. That school spirit that's that comes out of football, I think makes football in particular and basketball at some schools so the interdependency between that and the school's financial success because of all the alumni giving and the deals endorsements and stuff is so huge as part of their business model that many of these schools really are more about their sports than they are about anything else. And even if everything else gets plucked away, in some cases, that might be the last to go. But I'd be happy to have a Praxis. Uh, <laughs> actually, it, just, it doesn't make any sense. Why would we have a Praxis football team or basketball team, TK? It makes no sense at all. But It makes a lot of sense, but maybe we'll debate that in a future episode. Okay. Um, all right. Peter has another question. Do you have any thoughts on the Coursera specializations? Are they just an attempt to replicate higher education and degrees? Or are they an alternative that people should pursue? I'll give a quick take on this, and then TK, you, you um, give the last words since I did last time. Um, I don't know a lot about them, Peter, Coursera specializations, but from my understanding, they're sort of like badges or certificates showing that you have that you have gone through Coursera courses in a certain area and achieved some level of mastery. I think it's great. I think that's that's really what the market is about. That's what people are buying when they go to college. Everything else, they just are happy to get if they get it. The social experience, learning, whatever, that's great if it comes. They're paying, they are buying the signal. That's it, period. That is absolutely true across the board. You cannot prove to me that that's not true because if you weren't buying the signal, if you wanted any of the other things, you could get them without paying and registering for classes. You could move to a college town, you could live the exact identical college life and just not register for classes. You could still go to the classes and the only thing you wouldn't get is the piece of paper. Nobody does that because everybody's there for the piece of paper. So it's a market for signals. So to the extent Coursera can say, this signal, we want it to compete on the marketplace and have people be able to say, hey, I have a Coursera specialization. And the, and the minute that other people start to see that and say, ooh, that's valuable to me. I wanna contract with you to do some work for me, or I wanna hire you to, to be my employee. That's awesome. If they can make that signal valuable, I think that's great. I think it's amazing. I happen to be of the opinion that the more competing signals we have, the better. But I think at the end of the day, nothing beats the individual looking to themselves as the signal because we have something that was never possible in history before. And that's ability to be your own signal. I mean, all from the days of signet rings and family names to the days of degrees from big fancy institutions, those existed because they reduced transaction costs. You couldn't prove to someone, I'm a good sword fighter who's honest and decent and always repays my debts. 
No one, you couldn't, you had no way to demonstrate that to a stranger you'd never met before. So you had to use your family name and show them your insignia. And then they were based the weight of that institution. And that's what degrees did. You know, I'm a really smart guy who's built amazing, who can build amazing stuff for your company. There was no way to prove that in 1965. But if you said Harvard says I'm worthwhile, now you're relying on Harvard. It's reducing transaction costs. Today, you can prove it. You can demonstrate it. You can be like, watch me on YouTube. I did three backflips right there and I you know, took out a bunch of guys with my sword. I'm a cool, I'm a great swordsman. You know, Go look at my reviews on eBay. I have a 98% rating, I'm really honest. You know, Go look at the books that I've reviewed on Amazon. Go see the website that I built. You don't need a third party institution to be your reputation for you. You can be your own. You know, something like a Coursera specialization could be a great element in that mix. But I think to the extent that anyone's looking at it like, oh good, Coursera will do the work for me. Like hopefully they'll become a valued enough name that people will hire me based on their brand. No, 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 be your own brand, be your own credential. That's more possible than ever. And that could be one of the elements in that toolkit. Teek? Oh man, I mean, it, it's it's difficult to add to that. You know, I would just say I'm really ranty today, dude. I had two cups of coffee instead of one, and I am flying. That's why I was singing you, Journey this morning. You know what this episode is like? I don't know who's Westbrook and who's Durant, but this is one of those episodes where oh, I'm you know, Westbrook. It, I hog the ball, but I miss a lot more shots than you. It, t- today you score like 45 points and got 15 assists. Ex- ex- I, I don't know like, how you got I'm so like many assists. I'm like 150 shot attempts. <laughs> I basically hit one three-pointer from the corner. <laughs> That's about it. That's about it, man. But, you know, I mean, if you're still playing the gatekeeper game where it's about obtaining the credentials that you need to get those gatekeepers to let you through, it will always be interesting to take a look at alternatives that allow you to get those credentials in a way that's more efficient. And this is what Coursera specialization is attempting to do, right? You can get the knowledge for free because these specialization courses actually allow you to do it without getting the certification. So when you pay for it, that's what you're paying for. You're paying for that certification that says you completed it. So does it matter? It depends entirely on whether or not the gatekeepers you're trying to please will respect it. And and that that waits to be seen. You know, this is going to be a marketplace decision. Will the Coursera specialization certificates of completion gain respect in the real world? I, I think the interesting place or the interesting direction in which education is moving is going away from obtaining a credential that will allow a gatekeeper to let you through. And it's moving in the direction of finding a way to creatively procure opportunities even if you may not be worthy of them, you know, um, and, and, and getting the experience you need in that way and letting that experience, letting that record of value creation be the credential. So, for instance, with, with what we're doing, we're, we're basically making agreements with business partners to give opportunities to our participants, even though those participants perhaps wouldn't qualify for them on their own or something that Isaac has written about uh, on several blog posts before the idea of working for free in order to get experience. When I was interested in working in, in film, there were a couple of guys you know, who were independent filmmakers. I knew nothing about the industry or about filmmaking, but I had a background in financial analysis. And I said, I'll work for free. I'll be the one to create the financial statements. I'll be the one to write up the business plan. 
if you guys just let me hang around and annoy you with a bunch of questions, watch what you do and learn what you do. And I was able to learn a lot about the creative side of things just by getting myself in that position using my financial skills. So I think that ability, negotiating your way into opportunities, you know, that will allow you to build experience that you can leverage for for future opportunities. I think I think institutions and programs that allow you ways to do that is, is really where the future of education is. Yeah, and, and I never think it should be viewed, and I never want anything I say to be interpreted this way, as this is what you need to do, or this is the solution, this is the new credential, this is, everything should be viewed as a tool, including universities, including degrees. Everything is a tool that has costs and benefits, and you have to decide what you want and what you're willing to give up. So take an alternative signal, which I hear a lot of employers saying that they find valuable, that is being Google AdWords certified. You can go get Google AdWords certified in like a couple of weeks, take some online courses or in-person courses to get certified on running Google AdWords because they're, they're increasingly complex. So it's kind of hard to just run a good AdWords campaign now. So companies will pay you no degree. They don't care how old you are. If you're Google AdWords certified, they're interested in that. But that's just one type of signal. If you just say, oh, that will get me a job where I can do digital marketing and Google AdWords, you're probably selling yourself short. I bet you could get a better job and get higher pay if instead of worrying about the certification, you said, okay, that's a signal. Can I build a better signal? What if instead I took the same classes and learned Google AdWords, but instead of just saying, see, I'm certified by this uh, teaching company that I'm Google AdWords certified, say, here are three campaigns I ran with Google AdWords and here are the results. Here's how I increased sales for this company. I did it for free. Or here's something I spent $500 of my own money to run this Google AdWords campaign for these t-shirts and let me show you the results I get and let me tell you what I learned. Here's a little uh, five page slide deck where I put together showing the results and telling you what I learned from that. Can you imagine two people come to you and you're looking for someone to run Google AdWords and one guy says, I'm Google AdWords certified, or let's say three. One says, I have a degree in marketing. And one says, I'm Google AdWords certified. And one says, I ran the following Google AdWords campaigns and here were my results. You see how each of those increases in value so I think that's how you need to think about it, as all of these things are tools out there, but they're not all equally valuable for each situation. Which one is going to get you what you want the best? Um, you know, th th this makes me think about the fact that it's graduation season right now, and we're seeing a ton of posts uh, of, of, of parents putting up pictures of their, their child graduating high school or, or college. And I think it's great. If you're a parent, you made a lot of sacrifices. Your child has made a lot of sacrifices. Cool. Celebrate it. It's awesome. But the sad part about that for me is we have so fetishized credentials that this moment when a child graduates high school or college, this is the most proud that many parents will ever be of their children. Or to put it, put it in a different way, if you are someone that recently graduated, think about all the fanfare and attention and respect and pride that was displayed towards you by your family. That's probably going to be as good as it gets for you. Unless you win an Academy Award someday, that's probably the most fanfare you're going to get from the people in your life for doing something big. And, and, and that's that's sort of a sad thing because it, it shows that we've made the mere obtaining of the credential, the thing of real value, rather than the all important step of using that credential to demonstrate that ability to create value. It, it's kind of like celebrating making it to the Super Bowl. That's an awesome thing. Celebrate and have fun. But now it's time to play the game. Now it's time to do the real work and crush it. Because if you don't make this happen, you know, that thing you were just celebrating, you know, isn't going to mean very much. You're talking about graduation? 
What are we talking about? <laughs> what are we talking about, man? We talk about we talk about praxis. <laughs> hey, uh, on that on that note, we have one final listener question, which is really fun and quick. So we'll get to it in just a second at the end. Um, but my motor mouth isn't done yet. I'm not done taking shots, even though we're up by 20. Uh, there's two minutes left. I should probably just sit the bench and keep myself from getting injured. I'm still going to check up shots. Uh, I just heard I was listening to sports radio this morning. And there was an advertisement and it was sponsored by like the ad council and the U S military or something. And it was so sad and depressing to me. It was, it was somebody at a graduation ceremony saying, you know, congratulations, everyone who's graduating, everyone in the room for whom one of the following excuses for missing a day of school applies, go ahead and get up and leave and leave your cap and gown behind and wander out into the scary unknown. And the excuses were, uh, Sick days, family vacation, helping out around the house, a part-time job. And he listed these off. And the whole thing was like, and then it was like, you know, people who miss more than 18 days of school by the sixth grade are blah, blah, blah percent less likely to graduate. You know, don't miss school. Make sure you show up no matter what. It was the most scary, depressing thing ever. Acting as if helping your parents around the house, going on a family vacation, having a part-time job. Like those are worse than just coming to school no matter what, just showing up for another day of school just because. And this ominous, like you're not going to graduate and therefore you're going to sink into an abyss of nothingness. It was so scary. It was so like, there's just, there was no argument made. There was nothing about, hey, the value of what you get at school is way better, even though it's hard and challenging. Don't give up. No, it was like, hey, don't go try to work a job or do anything else. Just keep showing up. No matter what, you know. I mean, how absurd is this? Oh, com- completely absurd. But but that is their reward to to be among the people who remain in that seat and get a pat on the head from one individual who thinks they're impressive for it. That is their reward. And and everyone who got out of those seats and walked away, and anybody else that's willing to be a part of the process, their reward will be the greater reward of taking their gifts, taking their abilities, talents, skills, and passions and translating that into an awesome life where they get to create value for other people and make wealth on their own in the process. You That's are, the real reward. You are just casually sitting there in the corner making those corner threes as they come to you. I like Chris it. Bosch. You're I'm letting, Chris Bosch. You're letting the game come to you as they say. I'm forcing it. Forcing it. On every play. <laughs> uh, last question from Kelly Hackman. TK, you start. Do you have a brand? Up, Kelly? Do you have a brand or type of beer that you keep in your fridge? Oh, I'm so boring on this. No, I, I mean, I, I love ginger beer. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> well, you drink beer. Um, yeah, well, I mean, oh, you, only you know, that, you only do that around me so, so that I don't make fun of you. <laughs> right. I mean, it's a peer pressure thing. I, I, I love ginger beer. Cock and Bowl is the brand of ginger beer that I love. And um, <laughs> I, I can make a I can make a Moscow mule, you know, with a little ginger beer and whiskey. I like a Moscow mule. Those are good. Um, for me, I have gone through phases. I, I did not actually like beer very much when I got married. Of course I was 19 when I got married, but, um, 20 almost, it took me a couple years to start liking beer. And when I did, I only liked craft brewed stuff. And I liked really heavy, like stouts and porters and things that really tasted like something unique, sort of a, I like the burnt sort of chocolatey, earthy coffee type flavors, beers. And then I, I started like more and more Pretty much any craft brew. I loved Bell's uh, Two-Hearted. Uh, Bell's Best Brown was one of my favorites. 
And then eventually, and I hated like light beers and Budweiser and whatever, just tasted awful to me. And then somehow over the years, probably a, a combination of uh, budgetary, like grocery budgets getting tighter when you have kids, as well as just, I don't know, something just changed where it kind of flipped. Where I now, most of the time, I want to drink a Corona. Or, and I also live in South Carolina where it's hot most of the time. So I'm, I'm not usually in the mood for like a heavier beer. I just want something light that I can just kind of pound. And I kind of am in a phase where I'm going, where I usually go for quantity over quality. Like I'll just go buy a 12 pack of Yingling cause it's like 1099 for a 12 pack. Um, and just have those around. Cause I like beer that I, I can have around and I don't feel like, oh my gosh, I have to preserve it and save the beer for a special occasion. If you buy something fancy that's expensive, I always kind of feel that way. So I like just having like mindless where I can just, you know, it's really hot, had a great barbecue for dinner. Let me just crack open a beer and pound it. Maybe I'll have a second one. Sounds great. I don't have to worry about it. It was like, you know, less than a buck a can or a bottle. So I'm kind of in a phase right now, Kelly, that's pretty probably disappointing to a lot of hipsters out there where I'm just drinking like Budweiser, Yingling, Corona, um, really anything that's light and easily drinkable. Um, I do still like a good porter or a stout, uh, if I go to a microbrewery or something, what I don't like, and I like brown ales and I like lagers. I don't like IPA. I hate IPA. I think it is disgusting. If I wanted that flavor, I could just save the money, grab a, a handful of dandelions and just shove it in my mouth. I don't want to, I don't want to be drinking putrid flowers. It's just so floral and strong and bitter. I can't handle it. So IPA, no, everything else. Yes. Oh, that's funny you said that because I was just going to say I'm, I'm a big fan of botanical brews. So <laughs> <laughs> I want my blueberry melon. Um, IPA. Oh, man. You know, the other thing, too, there's a lot of the unfiltered beers, which are big at the breweries. They tend to give me a headache, I've noticed. Um, actually, my brother was the one to point this out. He was like, yeah, I've noticed I get a headache. And then I started to notice I do, too. I don't get a headache when I drink beer normally. But if I drink one that's unfiltered, sometimes that happens. So I don't know. Maybe I'm a, a wimp with uh, bad taste buds. TK, <laughs> uh, this has been awesome, man. Uh, recommendation. What's your recommendation for everybody this weekend? Let's go with Social Statics, Herbert Spencer. Mm. Good, good. Good stuff. Um, geez, I, I got it. What do, what do I want to recommend? All the all the books right now, I'm too early into them to recommend them. So let me let me go with a let me go with an old standby. This is the most important book in the world to me because the time when I read it, I didn't read books, I wasn't into ideas, um, and I picked it up and I read it, and it just made me fall in love with ideas and philosophy of books. And I read it probably once every couple of years, and I always love it. It's just so such a great picture in the human nature. It's short; you can read it this weekend. It's The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. It's a fictional journey from heaven to hell. Uh, absolutely great insights into human nature. Whether or not you're the religious component, don't worry about that. If you're an atheist or an agnostic or whatever, you, you're not interested in heaven and hell, you don't think they exist, whatever. none of that matters. This is just an interesting look at human nature and understanding some of the really the ways that we deceive ourselves. It's kind of about dealing with our own BS. Um, as TK likes to say. So The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. Nice. I love it, man. I love I guess, it. I guess that's it. I stopped talking and no one knows what to do anymore. You're, you're just falling <laughs> into the Chris Bosch role. Hey, man, this is a great time. We'll talk next week. All right, man. Peace.